You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We go through the journey of their life, the ups, the downs, the doubts, the fears, how they get to where they are today and get through their day to day. Because I believe that it is up to us to claim our joy, to claim our worth, to claim our feelings of enoughness, of success, of being loved, all of that, that it isn't out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I will feel successful. Then I will feel enough. No, you'll just keep on chasing it. It's an internal day to day job. On today's episode, I have Soshi Edelstein. She is an intuitive eating and body image coach, speaker, and the creator of intuitive eating potlucks. Such a cool idea. I really loved this conversation and getting to know her and her interesting journey and getting to where she is today and what makes her so passionate about um, her work with intuitive eating and body image. I think it's the thing that a lot of us struggle with, especially women. So I really enjoyed this episode. Let's get to it. All right. So let's first talk. So what do you, you most are currently doing a lot of work around intuitive eating and body confidence. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Body acceptance. Body acceptance. Yes, for women. Yeah. And so I feel like with that kind of work, that has to be for sure something that you lived through, have like strong feelings, life experiences with yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yes, totally. Absolutely. So where can you remember like where that started, whether it was with food or like how you felt in your body or both? Yeah. So. I love that you're asking this question because I've actually been doing a lot of work and lately and really owning my story and where it all, where my body image story actually began. And I used to start it from the age of 19, but now I actually start it from birth. Mm. So I was born and raised in Brooklyn. And my birth story is that my mom she was about, I was due any day and she never made it to the hospital because I was a 10 pounder baby. And so I just basically flew out of her at home and the bed, my bedtime birth story was always, you were such a huge baby and we never made it to the hospital. You just came flying out. So that from 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 even a really young age, I had a perception of my body that my body was really big, and I knew that big was not good. So them retelling the story, and they're just sort of like probably saying it like funny, like you were so huge, we didn't make it the hot. Like you know, they weren't at all meaning it in any sort of like negative thing. It's just it is a unique thing to be born a ten sure. pound baby. But you yeah. feel like you might have the hearing that over and over and then being like, that's something's not right about that. That's wrong. For sure. For sure. I mean, girls, girls get a message from when we're very young saying like bigger, you know, smaller is better. Tinier is better. Bigger is worse. Um bigger is bad. And my parent, my mom always said the story in a very loving way, but I took it as I'm, I'm a big person. I'm a big human being. 
And um, then when I was 10, I was sexually abused by this uh, young guy that was staying in our house. And I have gone back to this moment in my life many times, especially in the last few years. And I just remember that when it was happening, it was really the first time in my life I can actively remember leaving my body, disassociating from my body. Because in a way, if I disassociated, I, had, I didn't have to acknowledge that that was happening to my body. And that was, that was when I was 10. And when I was 13, um, so I, I grew up in a Orthodox Jewish community and we were essentially separated from the outside world. So no TV, no non-Jewish music, no, uh, radio, um, no media whatsoever. And when I was about 13, I started going to these little, what we call them in, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been to Brooklyn? Not, well, not when I was growing up, like when as an adult, yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's these little delis there, we right. call them bodega. Right, right. And I would go to the bodega and buy fashion magazines. And I would open up the magazines and see these beautiful women who were very thin and very tall. And I remember thinking, I want to be like them. They're so beautiful. They're so amazing. And I loved, I also loved fashion. I loved dressing. And I, I, I didn't look like them. So, okay. So f- let's go back. So being raised Orthodox Jew, and you were like saying you're sort of like isolated in your own community, but you're also in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So is that like at that time in Brooklyn, was it though, like you pretty much were staying in like a block, block radius, blocks of radius that was only Orthodox. You can see you maybe you weren't seeing people that were not Orthodox you on a daily basis or you were, or did you have any awareness of, because is that also, do you have to wear anything special or not as a kid? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So interestingly enough, um, my parents could never afford to live in the center of the of the the community that we grew up in. So we actually lived on the outskirts of town, and we were essentially um, living with a lot of African American and Haitian people, and so that was my they were my only non Jewish people that I was ever exposed to, really. And uh, yes, I had to be covered from the neck down. So I had to wear long sleeves, long skirts. And no matter what time of year it was, or no matter what time of year it was, I always had to be covered, you know, from from the neck down. And your mother, is that the same? Is it for all women? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My mother, my mother also covered her hair. Um, my father also wore special garments, um, only a white shirt and black pants. And yeah, we just were very, I only went to Jewish schools with girls and we were just very, very separated from the outside world. And in that culture, and what were you told as a kid? Like, what is the actual reason you do need to be covered? And what were you Mm -hmm. told as a kid? Because I would make up that might create confusion about your body as well. 
Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we were always told it was for modesty reasons, that if people saw our skin, it would give them certain thoughts about us. And that's why we had to cover it because it was just for us. And Mm. it's not that it was confusing for me, to be honest. I always say, like, I hated it. I hated being covered when my mom would take me shopping on the main avenue in the the neighborhood that we lived in i always wanted to go from like long sleeves to three-quarter sleeves to short sleeves i would do anything to have my skin exposed and actually till this day it's very interesting like in the summer i can't even wear pants i don't know if it's like a sensory thing i just personally do not like to be covered um and i felt it from very young and then So you were told your skin has to be covered for modesty and so that people don't think certain thoughts about you. And then you were actually sexually abused. Did any of that have any cross? And did you tell anybody? Was that something you kept to yourself for a long time? Are you told? And that's also like that feels for anybody to be sexually abused is so, I don't even have words for it, really, especially as a kid. But then, you know, I feel like yeah, being raised in that culture of like, no one can see your skin and something. Did that leave any lasting effect? And like, yeah, like, is there something like I violated? Or like, did I mess up? Did you take blame for that at all? I remember, you know, him in the act and being incredibly ashamed and embarrassed because that he was when I saw- ashamed and embarrassed or you? I was ashamed and embarrassed, but I was ashamed and embarrassed because Uh, when I was looking at him, I knew that he knew that this was wrong. Mm. And I felt embarrassed for him. I felt ashamed for him instead of myself. And then in a way, I've written about this, that, you know, in a way, when your body's covered, it's like you can cover up everything inside. So it's almost like it never happened. Mm. And uh, I waited a month and I actually, I told my sister and it took a whole month for her to tell my mother. And, you know, when my mother found out, she was devastated, completely and totally devastated. And I actually really never even acknowledged that that was part of my body image story up until a couple of years ago when the whole Me Too thing happened and Mm. came out. And I realized, oh, my gosh, Me Too. Till this day, you know, I have to sometimes, oftentimes, the reason why I used to say that I talk about body positivity and I've changed the language around that to body acceptance because my body positive journey has been a little unique in the sense that it's still really hard for me to be in my bodies Mm. a lot of days more often than not and what I've come to realize is there's a lot of things that happen to my body in my body that just make me feel not so great And for me, it's about coming back to accepting that this is how I feel sometimes as a human being in this lifetime and to understand why do I, why do I not feel well inside on certain days? And uh, a big part of understanding myself has been to acknowledge the things that have happened to my body, the traumas that have occurred uh, inside my body. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm, I think the me too movement probably shook a lot of people up too. Cause like I have my own experiences, not from childhood, but yeah, like teenage, early twenties and whatever. And that mm-hmm. things that have happened without me wanting them to, but that I think as females that we have so much, and I'm hoping so badly that it changes. Uh-huh. That men's change and women change for how they stand up for themselves. Cause I've got daughters and I know you do, but yeah, yeah. Like how it can be like how often it seems like that was wrong, but yet to not go to authorities or something, because it seems mm-hmm. like, well, I did this or was I too flirty or I was drinking or something in that like, but yeah. And so many of the things like I didn't even tell something that mm-hmm. happened to me. I did not tell a single soul until last year. Because wow. I hadn't realized really that it was wrong. Right. Like I remember yeah. in the moment being like, what is happening? This is wrong. Mm-hmm. And then going on with life and 10 years later being like, oh, that was really fucked up and wrong. <laughs> right. Right. And that, yeah. yeah, like so many of us, I think, are living with these things that we don't. Yeah, that we're just like forcing down or trying to ignore and it's kind of easy to ignore because it just gets blocked off exactly um yeah anyway (laughs) so let's then so you're 13 and you're suddenly drawn to these fashion magazines do you remember Mm -hmm. like then what starts that like or is it just like that age like what else in your life because that seems also interesting if like you didn't seem you knew you didn't you didn't like wearing the clothes and stuff like that. And then suddenly you're like, no, I love this. I love fashion. Like, how do you love fashion if you're like choices are so limited and like mm-hmm. that? Or did you always know when you were going to the stores, you were looking at these other things, but you just weren't allowed to have them? I think it was a mixture of everything. I don't know. I, I still need to get my chart, my astrology chart done. But like for I, I feel like for me, self-expression tied into clothing and aesthetic has always been a really big thing for me. And I, it wasn't, I mean, there was fashion in these shops that my mom would take me dress shopping and the dresses were beautiful. Some of them were from France and Italy and like Europe and stuff. But um, I, I just always as far back as I can remember, have had an issue with people telling me what clothes I can put on my body and just like what music I need to listen to and essentially how I'm allowed to express myself. I never liked it. Interestingly enough, I'm not a rule breaker. Like I really, I like to follow rules, but this always was like a thing for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and like, I remember always, I, I had some, you know, interesting fashion choices in my life and like mixing <sighs> things, whatever. But I, for me, it was very much, and even I used to change the color of my hair all the time growing up. And uh-huh. like, it felt like I was trying to send a message to the world of like my, who I was in some way. For sure. And I think even sure. like getting piercings, my tattoo, you know, like even sometimes I have some tattoos now, like, hmm, huh, maybe like, do I regret that tattoo? But then I also don't know who I would be without that tattoo, like with that, my skin For being sure. blank now, it's sort of like these things, whether it's clothes, tattoos, whatever, dyeing your hair, it sort of is like a shouting out to this world of like, hey, there's mm-hmm. something about me that's different. Or like, I, I don't know, it is like, I feel like making statements somehow that it For made sure. me feel more comfortable in my skin to be wearing some brightly colored mismatched things. 
Mm-hmm. But other people would be like, what? Well, it's a way that we, I mean, I truly think it's the way that our soul and our bodies say to the world, hi, this is who I am. Yeah. Right. So it is more than something superficial. And I'm starting to really explore that and play with that this year as weaving it into part of my brand because it goes so far back for me. But, um, you know, another thing I think I want to add is that my parents did not grow up in a religious, religious homes. They oh. grew up in secular homes. So my grandparents were not religious. Were they um, Hasidic Jews? Yeah, so they they're came, Hasidic they're Jews. both were born mm-hmm. Hasidic Jews, but they're both of their families were like non-practicing or they were not. My parents were not born Hasidic Jews. Oh, they okay. they became religious when they were like 19 or 20. Okay. And so my grandparents were very much involved in our lives, even though they were not religious. And I had grandparents who lived in Brooklyn and grandparents who lived in upstate New York. And they would always like whisper on the side, like, your parents, those people are crazy. Got like, it. We're, we're, we got you. We're going to feed you the food. We're going to expose you to things. Like they, they would whisper on the side. Got it. And, um, They, I think, you know, like when I was in fourth grade, my grandpa, my mother's father took me to the movies for the first time. We saw Pocahontas together and that was my first movie theater experience, you know, and when I would go to their house for like a month, they would buy all the non-kosher cereals because we had to eat non, we had to only keep kosher foods. And I was like, wow, these are amazing. These taste much better than kosher cereal. Did you have to keep <laughs> these things a secret from your parents or did your grandparents like tell them like, look, they're coming in our house. We're going mm-hmm. <laughs> to. It was a secret. I mean, we, we weren't, we, we never told our parents no. and it was great, you know? Um, my grandfather that lived in Brooklyn would take us out to pizza every single Sunday. So they were, and he, you know, they were secular, they were involved in the world. They were secular human beings. So I think that's where the exposure started to come from. And yeah, I started buying these magazines and also at the same age, that's when I had my first blow pop. So it's like my first, um, I started, going out on my own and and eating non-kosher lollipop and actually it's funny now that I'm thinking about it it's like the cereals weren't even non-kosher they just weren't kosher to my parents standards you know because there's different levels and my parents were like at the highest standard of kosher food so um so I started sneaking blow pops and I was like, this is amazing, but it has pig inside. It has gelatin inside and I'm going to go to hell if I eat pig. So there, there was guilt involved with that too. So you're like, this is the best thing ever, but also like feeling shame and guilt because like, what am I doing? So it's not at that time that you're like, I'm not buying into this religion. I'm going to do my own thing. You're kind of like back and like being pulled both directions. Back and forth back and forth like oh my gosh this is so good and I'm so bad um and yeah the buying magazines was another way of me trying to just express I just wanted to feel something I wanted to express myself in any way because I felt so choked by the rules um 
And yeah, that was how my body image journey began. And it began way more than I ever, it began way before I ever explored dieting. And I think that's true for a lot of women that I work with and just a lot of women in general is that typically dieting is the last straw, but there's oftentimes a ton of body image issues that are happening within us before we say, fuck this, I'm going to try my, I'm going to try a diet to manipulate my body into something. Got it. Mm-hmm. So 13 with the magazines, when you started to like body image, things started to come up and then like, yeah, then, so what does that turn into? And is it just starting to be, you know, it's an unfortunate natural thing that girls go through and again hoping that that gets shifted now which there is such a like broader impact of different bodies being seen and exposed but there Mm -hmm. is still like so much fat shaming and of everything that even if we are celebrating bigger bodies there's still other messages of Mm -hmm. but you need this you need this to be healthier to be thinner to be more vibrant like whatever like somebody even was exposing me to like well like even like the supplement world the energy world like that so much of health and wellness messaging mm-hmm. and advertisement mm-hmm. is still like saying like, you're not good enough. You need this. Mm-hmm. And not really like everything mm-hmm. is a different version of buying into I'm not enough. And it's not always exactly. bad. Like, okay, I want more energy. I'm going to try this. That's great. But like, are you coming to it? Because I want more energy or because I'm not enough unless I do this thing and do that and have mm-hmm. you know, like biohacking. Like it's like not all, it's not, and everything is bad, but it's like, are you doing it because you're not enough as you are right now? And so maybe this will make me enough, a better. For sure. For sure. It totally plays into that. Um, yeah, supplements are huge. Just one of the reasons I've been approached so many times. Can you sell this? Can you do this? And I'm like, look, it's not bad. Like, it's not a weight loss drug, but I also, it's exhausting. Oh my God, yeah. No, I'm, it's exhausting. There's so much and so many. I, I've been like anti-supplements for a while. And then I had um, Alyssa Goodman, who's an amazing like nutritionalist. And, you know, she wrote a book about like, beating care with cancer. I can't remember the title. And she is super knowledgeable and smart. And so mm-hmm. I really do vibrate with how she shares things and what she does, but she does take a lot of supplements. And I asked her like a favorite and stuff like that. And so even though I like got her, I've like slowly, and then a brand sent me a bunch of stuff last year, just like as a gift. And so because I have it in my house, I've slowly started to try things and I'm like, oh fuck, I actually, this is helping. And it's like, I'm almost <laughs> mad that it's helping. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm this. So stuff listen i'll swear by magnesium that's like one thing i take totally i used to have Um, magnesium in every bag i had and people would make fun of me like yeah so i and i do it just and i do think some helps but it's also it's hard to tell which is good and what brand is just like jumping on the like the cbd i'm afraid i was like i don't even like want to try cbd because i don't even know where to start because like everything has cbd now and it's like right so what is the right like yeah i don't even know so anything um yeah all right, we got a <laughs> supplement tangent. Change of subject, but, but part of it. Um, okay, back no, to so, your journey, yeah, with body image yeah. and where where that went to. So, so fifteen because I was only allowed to wear skirts, and when I was fifteen, I went to Times Square, and no, not Times Square. Penn Station by Herald Square. And that's where there's a huge gap there. And I bought my first pair of jeans. And I just remember walking out of the gap and feeling 
on top of the world. I remember what bag they came in. They were dark denim jeans, um, super dark. I remember the stitching, the, 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 now they changed, but they were plastic blue. They just had the, the word gap on them with the like, um, canvas kind of drawstrings. And those were my first pair of pants and I loved them and they meant freedom to me. And how old were you? And where do you even have the money? Like, was that like you're saving up money and like you're planning this big day? It's a good question. I don't remember. I think <laughs> like, where did I, I mean, get I guess the money? it could be like, you know, you get money for Maybe birthdays or. Yeah. I don't even know. And, and that also at that time I started um, going to going dancing at clubs in the city. And I guess all this you're hiding and, from your parents. All of this I'm hiding. So I list, I loved, I loved non-Jewish music. Even from the first time I heard a non-Jewish song, it was amazing. I'm in love. And started going dancing and had my like, you know, pants hidden away. And um, when I was around 16, I came home one day and my mom I, don't, I really don't remember what the fight was about, but I came home and my mom had essentially emptied out my entire room. Like she had thrown everything in the trash and everything, pants, shirts, seat, like music CDs, uh, God, everything, everything was gone. My underwear was gone. And I remember time number two of that experience being so overwhelmingly horrific for me because when you're a teenager it's like that's your life your shit is your life your clothes are your life like you think oh my god I'm gonna have these jeans forever these are me you know and one day that was all gone never to be found I went searching in garbages and it was just devastating and I that was time number two where I just my nervous system was like nope and I left I left my body and when I was 17, we were dealing with a lot of crazy, intense stuff going on at home. And my mom kicked me out. She disowned me. And I mean, I'm guessing I, then from the time she throws everything away to that, are you still then trying to get the other things and sneaking around and doing stuff? Yeah, definitely. I was just trying to like survive. My mom has mental health issues and I was just trying to like, get through it day by day of living under her abuse her verbal and emotional abuse uh when i was uh 16 she or 7 16 ish she pulled me out of the school that i was in because it wasn't religious enough and then i missed a whole year of school and high school and there was just so much going on oh, so she home. pulled you out of school and you just didn't go to school I missed school for a whole year wow. in high school. And then she put me back into a new school and it was just really different. And yeah, 17 came around and she kicked me out. She disowned me. And she, again, this goes back to such a vivid memory of me just standing at the bottom of the stairs and her standing at the top and being like, your mother's dead. I don't want to ever know you again. And that was also a really big defining moment in my life because what happened again was that it was so overwhelmingly traumatic that I left my body again. I couldn't be in my body. And I left home 
And I was floating around and homeless for a bit. And that was terrifying and horrible. And so um, you were just like sleeping park benches or wherever. Or did you have friends you could like crash at? So my friend's parents took me in for a little bit, but then she started kind of giving them problems and they couldn't keep me anymore. And then I got into the foster system and this really sweet couple took me in for like a year, but it was going through like family courts and I was just, it was emotionally unstable because I never knew if they would, if I would have to go back to her house. And at that point, once she kicked me out, I was like, I, I never want to go back. I never wanted to go back to the house. You don't know if she's going right. to then reclaim you and you're forced to exactly. go back to her house, like under exactly. the government or whatever. Right. And it like went on for a year and I just never knew, am I going to have to go back? And the thought of going back would give me like terrible anxiety and nightmares. And it, this time you mentioned you had a sister. Is that your only sibling or? No, I actually have eight siblings. Oh so um, I have many, I have six sisters and two brothers. Where are you in the line? third to oldest. So I have an older sister and an older brother. And then I have many girls and one boy underneath me. Okay. And so Mm -hmm. were your older siblings out of the house? They, my older brother lived in the house, but boys were given different privileges and girls. So his life was vastly, his privileges was, were vastly different than mine. And I had an older sister who wasn't going to school, like out of town. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I imagine that has to bring it. It's one thing to like be kicked out of your home by your mother, but then, yeah, to also be away from all of your siblings. Yeah. Does that affect your relationship with them? I mean, we would still see each other because I still lived in the same community and we would sneak and see each other and it it didn't really, I mean, we were still close. We've always been close as as siblings. We've always been as a family yeah and yeah by the time so I like lived with this couple for a year and they fought for me and I was able to stay there but it was never it never felt 100% safe and then when I I was then living with the fear of also like are they going to change their mind why are they keeping me or is also is my mom going to change her mind my mom couldn't change her mind but because it went through courts, but I just, you know, they took me in, they already had a bunch of their own kids because they were also super religious and it just didn't feel, I mean, I just wasn't, it wasn't my house. I lived with them. Yeah. I had a room, you know. I'm guessing you probably felt a bit like an outsider and like you didn't belong it some way. I just, I, I, yeah, I just, I was coming into their home. So it wasn't, you know, and I didn't know, could the, could the shoe drop at any given moment? I can't, you know, I've been going, as I've been re-owning my story, I've been going over this a lot and homelessness is a big thing for me. I have like a fear of being homeless, even though it's been, 17 years since it's happened that I've never really been able to like wash that fear from me. And I think that the, once my mom was like, you have to go, like I just was homeless. I did not know where I was going to sleep and I had no money. 
So even though I've always had a home since then, it's been hard to actually feel it in my body. Mm. Like even some things you can feel like now with Mm -hmm. pain. Absolutely. Like or as an adult where you are paying for your own home and stuff that it still can feel like anything can change in a moment. Which it can, but that you like really have that in your body. Unsettledness. Yes. Mitrisha bringing you a brief interruption because I have got to tell you about my infrared sauna blanket. You're like, what the heck are you talking about? You've likely heard about sauna rooms, the sauna booths. Those are cool. I have what's basically an infrared sauna sleeping bag. You get in it, got long pants, long shirt, socks on. You get in this sleeping bag, <laughs> they call it a blanket. And turn it on. I like mine at about seven. I keep water nearby. I lay down and watch a good show. And I sweat all the tech toxins, all the stress, all the achiness, all the soreness out of my body. I am obsessed with this thing and I'm not the only one. Apparently Lady Gaga has one, Selena Gomez. It definitely is a big helper if you're someone like me that has um, chronic pain and inflammation. But it also, it's something I do if I've had a long day of driving, if I've been exercising a lot, if I'm just freaking tired, if I feel like I have a cold coming on. It is major for detoxifying. It improves collagen, it improves sleep, it reduces inflammation, it increases blood flow and circulation, soothes muscles and joints, it's anti-anxiety, it increases feel-good chemicals. And it actually even burns 600 calories. So that's nice too. You really do feel your body releasing stress, releasing toxins. It is amazing. I am obsessed. Go get it. Higherdose.com. They even have an uh, interest-free payment plan. And you can use my code JOY100 for $100 off. If they ever cancel that code, try JOY50 for $50 off. But I'm pretty sure they're still honoring JOY100 for $100 off higherdose.com. It's seriously amazing. I bought mine a year ago. I use it a couple times a week. So worth the money, worth the investment. Super easy, amazing, nurturing self-care that you can do at your house. And it's even easy to roll up and put away. So go invest in yourself. It seriously has been a game changer for me. Higherdose.com. Joy 100. So yeah, so what happens? You're getting close. Yeah, like you're turning 18, coming into being an adult. Where does your path take you? So I started working in the city right away. And uh, we would, I worked at a kitchen and bath showroom. And we, I moved out right before I turned 18. Like I moved out. I got my own apartment. I shared it with a friend. And I got a job and I, we had, we would have these parties, um, at work and somebody snapped a photo of me on a digital camera. It was like right when digital cameras were coming out and they showed it to me two weeks later. And I remember just looking at that picture and I don't know what it was in me that, that snapped, but I do believe that if we don't deal with trauma, it will haunt us. and. I didn't know it at the time, but I was beginning, I was at the beginning stages of experiencing PTSD from everything that had happened with my mom and throughout my life. 
And uh, she showed me the picture on something and they went, nope, uh, that girl has to be smaller. She has to lose weight. And that was when I tried my first diet. I was uh, 19 and I did a whole bunch of research. And at that time, the Atkins diet was in. And I see you going, yup. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, my mom was really into the Atkins diet when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And she loved it, even though Mm -hmm. I felt like this can't be right because it gave her like halitosis. Like her breath smelled terrible all the time. So I was like, this can't be right. But she convinced me I was going on like senior trip where like in my in my town when you graduate high school, it was like a big thing. You saved up money and everybody went to Panama City and you, you know, drank until you got sick. And it was an amazing, terrible week. But I was like, I'm going to be in bathing suit as an 18 year old and going to Panama Uh City like here. So my mom pushed me to do the Atkins diet and I hated meat and cheese and like all that stuff. And that's all she ate. I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I did like immediately lose weight. I didn't keep it up though because I hate I thought it was the most terrible (laughs) because that's also people do the Atkins diet. I think it was actually created in a good format if you actually do the whole thing. But most people just stay on like step one, which is like you eat all of these like meat and cheese and like no vegetables. Like, you know, like I think that when I did end up going into like nutritional school, a lot of these diets that become fads were created for real health reasons. And if you did the Mm -hmm. whole thing, it could change your health. But most people stick on like the most extremes like step. For sure. And that's, yeah. So I'm like, but yeah, it gave me immediate weight loss so that I could look good in my bathing suit for that week. But then I was like, fuck this. Uh, I'll I'll give you the research on why people don't stick to it in a second, but I did it and I lost a bunch of weight and I, same thing like you. And I, everyone was giving me compliments, but you know what happened after two weeks is I got this intense sugar and carbohydrate craving and I went down to the bodega, lots of memories and stories at the bodega and i i for the first time in my life went up and down every single ion it got cakes cookies candies ice cream everything into my bag paid for it went back upstairs and for the first time in my life i binged and as soon as i binged again many first times uh with this story i felt guilt shame and self-deprecation like oh my god what have i done And following that, I went back on the diet or did something more extreme to try to lose the weight that I had just gained back in like two hours from the binge. And so for the next six years, I lost and gained so much weight. And I tried every diet on this planet that you could ever imagine or think up. And I was very addicted to exercise as a means of punishment and erasing what I had done with food. And at this time, I was in school to become a certified health coach. And I was still having tremendous struggles with food, even though I was learning nothing new, but learning about nutrition and all that jazz. And six years later, I was out on a date with this guy. We were hiking and I slipped and broke my ankle and I had to be rescued out of the mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I went to the doctor and he said, you have the worst ankle break. Do not move for the next five weeks. Like if you move, you're going to have to get surgery. And I was like, oh my God. And I couldn't move for five weeks. I couldn't exercise. And I broke, I broke down. 
I broke, whatever you want to call it. Uh, like a week after this happened, I was laying on my bed naked in a cast in tremendous pain. And I just remember sobbing. I was at rock bottom. Of You're six sobbing years. because you can't exercise or I'm because everything, because the pain of everything. I'm sobbing because I had left New York and moved to Colorado and the binge eating followed me and I thought it wouldn't. I was sobbing because I couldn't stand my body. I loathed being in my body. I hated it. I hated how I looked. I hated how I felt. I was obsessed with exercising and I couldn't move my body anymore. I felt scared, anxious, alone. I felt as if I was going to die binge eating, struggling with food, hating my body. And I didn't want to go on. I did not want to go on. And I just spoke to God that day. Doesn't have to be God for anyone that's listening. It could be universe. It could be mother, whoever it is. I spoke to somebody that day. And I said, if I have to go on like this, take me. Because I can't, I cannot go on like this. I'm not okay. And a few days later, I happened to be babysitting and I was talking to their mom and I said, I don't, there was no language or name for binge eating at that time. I didn't even know. I thought I had a control problem with food. And I said to her, I don't know what's going on, but I do this weird thing with food because it was kept inside. I felt so ashamed of the behavior. And she said, she happened to be working at an outpatient treatment center for eating disorders. And she said, I think you might be struggling with an eating disorder. And she, a week later, I was an outpatient and thus began the the next part of my life, phase two of making peace with food and my body. And um, it was through intuitive eating and body acceptance that helped me heal my relationship with food and my body. And that was 10 years ago. And today, um, I work with women that um, all across the board that want to make peace with food. You don't, I don't work with women that have eating disorders, but struggle with disordered eating, dieting, diet cycle, body image issues, mothers that want to make peace with food for their own children. And I help them make peace through intuitive eating and body acceptance. It's such a big thing. I think especially mm-hmm. for women. Um, and I want to talk about that. But then also like, so it sounds like breaking your ankle sort of saved your life. Yes. In yes. in many ways. It was a gift. Yeah. It was a gift for me. I think I've thanked myself and universe so many times because that was literally a breaking point for me. I hit rock bottom. Which unfortunately, sometimes we have to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. to yeah, really get out to. of our own way and like look at like what the sure. fuck am I doing <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah it's hard um and then going back how did you even get yourself to Colorado like was that an opportunity that was given to you or were you like what because that seems like pretty major too like and I think probably was a good choice for you to leave New York and Brooklyn Mm-hmm. all of that that you had grown up with and were trying to escape from mm-hmm. but did you also then what was that move to Colorado was it like let me escape all of this and then oh like you said you'd brought the binge eating with you and like all that pain and everything too like do you what was the trip moving to Colorado about 
So when I was 23, I bought a one-way ticket to Australia. And my best friend and I lived there for four months. And then we backpacked through uh, Southeast Asia. And um, I was gone for six months. I loved traveling. I loved my first boyfriend, my first serious boyfriend. When we were 18, he took me to Costa Rica. And that was besides for going to Israel when I was young with my, my, my mom on family trips, I had never left the country. And that was the first time I left the country. And I loved it. I loved the culture. I loved the food. So when I'm 23, my, I had saved up money and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go live somewhere else for a little bit. So I lived there for six months, traveled back, back. And I came back to New York and I was working in the diamond industry. I had been since I was like 19 or 18 even probably. And um, I came back to New York. I went back to working in that industry and there was no windows in my office and nobody had ever left New York City. And I was there from uh, for a few months. And here's the crazy part about this story. I love that you asked me that. So one day I'm, I, I couldn't stand being back. I could not stand being in that office. And one day I went out for lunch and I just remember standing on like a big street in the city and it was lunch hour and looking and there was just so many people. And I went into the gap again and I sat, (laughs) I sat in the corner and I called my friend who was going to school in, in Boulder. And she, I said, I can't do this. And she said, I have an extra room in my house, come out. And I literally went back to the office and I told, and this is crazy, the foreshadowing, I don't even know where I got this from. I went back to my boss and I said, I'm struggling with an eating disorder. I didn't even know I had an eating disorder. I didn't even identify somebody that had You were just like using that as an excuse to get out of your job. I was making it up. Whoa. I was like, wait, I'm confused because you said you didn't. (laughs) And I said, I said, I have an eating disorder and I have to go get help. And... I gave him a month and I stayed there for another month and I took one big bag from my apartment in New York City. So you just thought you were going for a month to go stay with your friend? No, I I knew I was, I I took one backpack of my belongings and I left. I went to Colorado and uh, my friend lives a few miles into the canyon over here and I just came here. And the second I landed, I felt good totally different environment totally different environment like I felt actually safer in my body it was like the beginning of starting to feel a little safer and but still you know the binge eating followed it followed it followed it wasn't until I came in November it wasn't until April of the next year that I broke my ankle and got help so it was months and months of like coming here, feeling better, but then being like still really struggling with food and even my place in the world, for sure. Yeah. Wow. So you just packed up a bag of your stuff. Did you even have, did you have your own apartment? Did you just like leave your room? You just were like, whatever, find a new roommate. Did you have... (laughs) My friend was out here. She had a house. She was going to college here and she had an extra room. But I'm in your place in New York. I had a family member living there. They had, they, I was going to have another family member move in. The apartment is still in my name in New York City because it's rent subsidized. <laughs> so it's been passed down to family. But it wasn't a big deal. Have, you had a family and like, oh, so-and-so can move deal. in. Yeah. I'm out of mm-hmm. here. And here, yeah. anybody need a place? 
And I left. I came with a big backpack. And that was that. That was 10 years ago. So then you go to, you start the inpatient for the eating disorder and that starts your journey. But I'm guessing you probably, did you start like working and making this be your work, your like life mission right away? Was that sort of a like you healing yourself and then slowly realizing I need to share this with other people? Or like, where did that come about that? Like, I need to be helping other people. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't start coaching women until five years ago. Uh, and maybe even it was more like almost six years ago now. And, um, you know, it took me from when I heard about intuitive eating and then it was like five months until I stopped binge eating altogether. And there was, you know, a few years back then, no one was talking about body acceptance and intuitive eating. And I would walk around and be like, hey, guess what? I used to struggle with food and now I don't. And I would ask women, you know, like, what's your story with food? Like, what do you do? And I just started to realize like diet culture was all around me. Yeah. People and don't even really realize was, they have they an don't issue even with the food. It's webbed into everything. It still is. And I think it always, maybe I'm being pessimistic, but I think on many levels, it always will be in some form. And um, yeah, I had become a certified health coach. And I, once intuitive eating was so transformative for me, I started talking to other women about it. And they were like, wait, that makes total sense. And yeah, that's when I started coaching professionally six years ago. And it's just morphed into its whole own thing. Now it's my full-time career. Yeah, I remember. So I've, yeah, like, you know, uh, I, I was, I think I'm lucky <laughs> that I have <laughs> chronic pain and condition, which was motivated a lot of how I took care of myself. Mm-hmm. So I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia when I was 18 after wow. seeing like lots of different doctors mm-hmm. and being misdiagnosed and having like, you know, people tell me there's nothing wrong with me that I must be making it up. And like a, my pediatrician for my like life and like that. So I had a lot of things. And when I was finally diagnosed with fibromyalgia, they gave me pills and I went off to college and the pills like just gave me more problems. It felt like. So I chose then that I, okay, well, what can I do to make myself feel better? And it was like a long journey. Cause like, also I remember being in college and eating diet, Dr. Pepper and red vines for lunch. And I thought I was so healthy because it's fat free. Like, like I was like, this is my lunch. I'm killing it. Like, you know, so like saying like me getting in through that healthy eating was like a slow journey, but then starting to like realize, oh, okay, I discovered yoga that how that changed my like exercise. For me, I was also my mom has so much body issues in diet culture. I mean, obviously, she's the one that pushed me to get on um, Atkins. She still uses the word I got to get back on my diet like today and she's like turning 70. Um I also realized that I remember being in college and living in Chicago and being like getting a gym membership and getting on an elliptical machine and being in incredible pain for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Once I got past the 15 minutes, I could finally feel pain releasing in my body. So Mm -hmm. even back then, even though it was like, oh, we have a treadmill in our house, you know, like we need to be active when I was a kid, but you're not allowed to run because you could hurt the treadmill. That's was like when I like remember being in high school with like that messaging. Um, so like so sort of having this messaging, but not super 
you know, it wasn't, uh-huh. like, it wasn't like crazy intense, but like but living with that, but then also realizing, oh, I need to exercise because it really helps my body, even though it's really hard uh-huh. for me. So uh-huh. I think that, you know, like that's a benefit in many ways and that I'm still am driven today. And it's not like, oh, I need to exercise because I need to be able to fit in these jeans or what do I look like? But I know it's going to make me feel better. Uh-huh. So I had a lot of, oh, okay. And I stopped eating gluten in 2004. <laughs> Uh-huh. because a friend of mine was diagnosed told was told by his doctor to not do it and like I realized it really helped my fibromyalgia pain so a lot of how I took care of myself was because it helped how I was in my body and because I was living a big life I was a professional scientist uh-huh. like I got dreams I gotta be awake and alive I cannot be laying in bed in pain so it was uh-huh. a lot of motivated by how I wanted to feel but I remember oh man it was like 2000 nine maybe 2010 and I was getting ready to live on a leave on a trip to India I'd like given all my belongings away I thought I was going to be in India for like six months and the weeks leading up to me leaving because it was like planned way ahead of time like this tour cycle is ending here and then I'm gonna be around for the holidays and then I'm going to India and I remember being like oh like I can eat anything I want like gluten-free grilled cheese, gluten-free pizza. Like I was like really living it up. And I remember saying, I like saying out loud to somebody like, yeah, I can eat whatever I want because Uh I'm going to India soon. And like, in my mind, they're only going to have Indian food. Uh And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, what the fuck? Like I'm only right now allowed to eat whatever I want. Right. Because soon I'm going to be somewhere where I won't have those options and like realizing right. like the programming and messaging and these uh-huh. food rules I had been living by that I didn't right. realize like I can't have those things or if I'm going to be bad and have a gluten free pizza right. or like, right. you know, that like even though I was really taking care of myself, there was guilt and shame around these things that weren't known to be healthy right. foods or like I didn't eat right. white potatoes until like I became pregnant with my daughter and started craving them because white wow. potatoes are bad. You know, like, right. and I didn't, unless I'm saying like, I wasn't, you know, I never like did the binging and like that, like, you know, it's like, but yeah, it's like we all, I think had some version of disordered eating, right. you know, yeah. like, I don't think I yeah. had disordered eating or like when I'm like, oh, but maybe we all do. Or like these food rules are like weaved into our belief systems and affect our choices. And like, wow. Yeah. They're everywhere, you know, and they affect some people minimally. Like, it's like, oh, that food is good. That food is bad. And then it's like, some people struggle with binge eating. Yeah. And none of it is normal or healthy. And just even touch on what you're saying, because I think it, to me, it sounds like you're one of the few people that have figured it out. I am all about, I have, I have a friend who she can't do gluten for whatever reason she has some stomach stuff that comes up. She can't, and she has never, she hasn't had gluten in like eight years. It's a non-issue for her. Okay. So that's a good method of healing for her. Then I have a woman who sat with me at my intuitive eating potluck and says like, I really am not supposed to have gluten, but I keep on having it. And I'm such a terrible person person for having it. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get my shit together? And for her, I would say, that's not a good method of healing for you. Because if you cannot stick to it, and when you eat it, you feel guilt, shame, and self-deprecation, that's not a good medicine for you. And I don't know why some people, uh, it's okay. It's non-baggage. It's a non-issue. And for other people, it is. Like for me, no matter how 
for me, because of my history of an eating disorder and the promises I've made to myself about, because I consider myself fully recovered from an eating disorder. One thing that I do not F with is food. So for me, when doctors start to say, hey, this or that, I say, I'm sorry, cut. That's not a good medicine for me. Here's why, right? So I just want to share that part because I think it's so important that this works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. Well, yeah. And that's also like the reason cutting gluten out of my life is easy for me is because when I have had gluten, then I am miserable in my body for 10 days to two weeks till it gets out again. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's mm-hmm. no joke for me. Yeah. You know, like, and yeah. if, so it, it doesn't affect like other people, your doctor, or you might be like, oh, I have this or gluten, not eating gluten is supposed to help these symptoms. So I'm not going to do it. But I don't think that it affects everybody. I feel to feed my children gluten. <laughs> For sure. You know, so it's like, I don't think gluten is evil. I was just saying, like, I found something that helped me. Yeah. And that's why I do it. And like the same thing and that I'm feeling like if I keep eating something and it makes me feel like crap, like, like I, my doctor told me I was allergic to eggs and I was like, no, I'm not. And then I eat them and then I feel like miserable. I'm like, Like hey, maybe I'm not supposed to eat it. (sighs) You know, like, so it's like listening to my own body and it's like, okay, uh, I feel miserable and I can't live my life because of something I because ate. That. Totally. That's a good choice. Yeah. So for, totally. me, for me, gluten is not even something I'm worth. It's worth taking a bite of to see if I right. grown this. No fucking way do no. I even want to change right. that shit because totally. that's how it affects my body. Totally. And, and it's like the way that you're speaking about it feels so out of a, it's not a body size thing for you, no. right? Big difference. Because when people are motivated by body size, like I'm not going to have gluten, I'm not going to have dairy. And it's being motivated by having a smaller body. That's also a recipe for disaster because typically they're not going to be able to stick to that set of rules. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, what okay also i love that you started these picnics is it a picnic there are picnics in the summer and potlucks in the winter there we go that's a word another p word and so what was the inspiration around creating that because it sounds like an amazing idea but I've never heard of it before. (laughs) Yeah. So intuitive eating has changed my life. It's changed my clients' lives. It's changed people's lives just from me speaking about it on social media. And um, wait, before we even go further, let's clarify, because I also have had some other people that mention uh, like uh, I'm good friends with Robin Euclid. I've had Lisa Hyam on of the wellness necessity deliver. So they somewhat talk about intuitive eating in their own way too. And I think everybody might have their own definition of that. And I think intuitive eating sounds amazing, but also very confusing. Right. Too. So what do you, how would you describe intuitive eating? Yeah. It's just a non-diet approach to nutrition. It's using your own body to tell you this food feels good, this food doesn't, I need this much to keep me satisfied. Um, The way that I like to say it is you can't have healthy habits with food unless you have a healthy relationship with food, right? So the healthy relationship, i.e. the mental part of food has to be stable in order for you to have good habits with food. Typically with diet culture, it's different. They tell you have good habits, you'll be cool, right? But that's not working very well. There's a 98% fail rate with diets. Um, So intuitive eating is just empowering you to use your own body to determine what to do with food. 
right? And it go, it breaks all barriers because yes, in if we look at uh, I don't know, I'll give an example of like ice cream, right? It could be really bad. There's sugar, there's carbs, there's all these things, right? You get the sugar crash, right? That's one way to look at it. But it could also be really medicinal if you're taking your daughter to ice cream and you guys are doing this as a way to connect and uh, it tastes really pleasurable to you. You got the exact flavor that you wanted. There's no guilt, there's no shame. And when you when your body sends you the signal, it sends you the message that says, hey, we've had a knock, you feel empowered to put it down. Yeah. And I think that too, when you're approaching a food, especially like something that's like a treat or you've been programmed to say is wrong, that like oftentimes we overeat it because it's like, all right, if I'm Mm -hmm. allowing myself to have this, I'm like going for it. And you're not even usually then like tasting it or enjoying it. You're just like shoving it down your throat. And then like, yeah, I, I can see I've never... I'm like, you know, it's like it might be my own version of binging, but not what I would I would ever name binging. But like, yeah, where it's like it sorts of be like, OK, I'm gonna eat this whole bag of chips. And then like it's sort of like the process of the eating. Then you're just like, what else can I eat? Like mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's just yeah. that. But if you're coming from like, I'm allowed to have this, like I'm enjoying this ice cream. This is delicious. And sure, it's made of fat and sugar and these things that I've been told are wrong. But like if you're actually allowing yourself to enjoy it and accepting it right, then like you're able to notice when you're satisfied Mm -hmm. right is that the outcome is going to be completely different so if you if before you even put food into your mouth you're already feeling guilty shame like i'm bad for doing this the way that it's going to be digested and metabolized into your body is going to feel a lot different than if you give yourself full permission to have it and you have it again tomorrow like I, the, with the people that I work with and even at my potlucks, I'm like, oh, you're eating McDonald's? Cool. Let's figure out how to do this in a way that feels good, right? Get the thing you want, bring it home, put it on your own plate, sit down, get rid of your phone, get rid of all other distractions, go enjoy McDonald's. You're eating Chick-fil-A, do the same thing. So the, going back to the reason why I created this, when I was recovering from, from my eating disorder, we would sit around and have group meals. And it was as part of your time, outpatient? As part of the outpatient, we'd sit around and have meals and there was pizza and french fries and all these things, <gasps> right? All the right? Could you imagine? Did that freak and, you out at first? Like, what are you doing bringing this food in here? <laughs> you know... There, it was very. Or do mindful. some people have reactions like that? There was there was some people. For me, I was like, I will do anything to stop binge eating. So if you tell me that having a slice of pizza in a calm environment will help me from stopping to binge, I'll do it. I'm here. Not everyone has this experience with eating disorder treatment. For me, the feeling, the loss of control that I had when I binge was so absolutely terrifying that I didn't care what I had to do. I was willing to do it which is why I consider myself fully recovered till this day. And I, there's certain things I don't F with diets. I don't F with food because my having the, the title of recovered from eating disorder feels highly important to me and the work that I do in this, in this world and in this lifetime. But we'd have these meals and it was the first time that I started to feel safe near all foods. And I realized that if I was going to have a healthy relationship with food, all food needed to be included back into my diet. So I created the picnics and the potlucks to, it's, it's basically simple terms. It's I create a safe, non-judgmental environment where people can come together and eat all 
foods without judgment. Okay. And, and I create the menu and I make sure that it's super diverse. And then people each bring a dish and we pick different food themes and we talk about a different topic. So this past month, the topic was guilt, shame, and self-deprecation. And it was beautiful. The things that came out of people, the reasons why it's so hard for us as women to be mindful, all of that, understanding what diet culture is, why we're so influence what what is media influence when it comes to body and food and it's beautiful every month i love it and i love that you had the guts and the passion to like i said not just have this healing for yourself but to want to recreate that experience that you had Mm -hmm. and give that to other women that don't even realize they may need to have that healing and be open to that for sure. Yeah, I, I think, think everyone can use it. Yeah, I think I really a lot do. of people may realize they have some, you know, issues, especially if they're constantly like on a diet cycle or this or that or constantly looking and what can I do to change my body or I want to eat this, but I'm not allowed or like that sort mm-hmm. of struggles or just, yeah, people that may not even realize it because it's just like a part of American society and probably larger than American society. Yeah, yeah, it is. Truly. I think, like I said, people struggle with food or have issues with food in many different capacities, you know, and I think everybody can benefit from the practice of intuitive eating. And like I always say to my clients that I coach, like, I don't have an agenda with you and food. To me, if you tell me you eat kale and you tell me you go to Chick-fil-A, they both have the same moral value to me. I don't care. Right. My, my, uh, job as your coach is to teach you how to tune into your own body near those foods. Yeah. And it's a game changer, game changer for everyone. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, like a lot of people don't even, I'm very good at noticing how I feel in my body. But like I said, I think that's a gift that Mm -hmm. my pain gave me along with the fact that I was built with a gift, like a passion to want to do things. And that first was to be the sound engineer and make it. And then, then now to spreading my messages of like getting out of your own way and stop making life so hard for you and how yourself talk and stuff like that, that both of those things make me very in tune on how am I feeling. So some days that might mean I need to rest and cancel things. Some days that means I've, oh, I got to go get green juice. Remember when you used to drink green juice all the time and then you stop for like weeks, but maybe that actually sounds good in my body right now. You know, it's like, uh, you're like, yeah, you know what? Tonight I really want pizza and that's awesome. And just that I'm good at learning or like noticing how I feel, even if it's, Mm -hmm. why do I feel this heaviness right now? Oh, it's because I got this email and I read into it as if they don't like me. Right, right. Like all sorts of things of noticing how you feel in your body. And most people I don't think are because there's life coming at us constantly. Mm -hmm. So much to process. Mm -hmm. But that's such a big thing for me is like noticing how I feel and like then being like, what caused this? Oh, is it something Mm -hmm. I ate? Is it? Because somebody re- didn't reply to a text message, and so I'm making it be a big deal. Like, <laughs> I love that you're so tuned into your body that way. And I said, you know, this goes back to what I said before about like leaving my body so much. Why I don't even talk so much about body positive, even though I think body positivity is really amazing. For me, I'm just invested in okay, how do we how do we get us ourselves to be more inside our bodies and to understand? Because when I think of confidence, I think okay, this is what ha- what's happening in my body right now. This is why I don't feel good. And 
So little of it has to do with food. So much of it has to do with what's Mm -hmm. happening to us. What are people saying to us? What are we taking in from media? Who's saying no? Who's saying yes? What's happening around me? What's creating the feeling in my body that does not feel good? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what a lot of it, it's like, even if we have food issues, it might not actually be caused Mm -hmm. by the food. It's like we're using it as a medicine even sometimes, not necessarily to heal our body, but to like heal our feelings or like Mm -hmm. that. Or whether it's, oh, if I do this, follow all these procedures, then I'll be enough. Or I'm really sad or I'm this or I'm lonely. So let me just like keep putting these things in my face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) So much to it. All right. Um, I'm going to ask you my questions. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels? If you're maybe not feeling so vibrant, you got a coaching session, you're about to hold a putt you're going to see your, whatever, it's, you're in your daughter time and you realize you're in a funk, like something easy you do to get your joy levels up. Be outside. Yeah. Like get outside. And if I can't get outside, open my windows. Now I'm saying this and let's be honest, it's winter here in Colorado. And I haven't opened my windows in a while, but that's a big thing for me. I'm like, if I can't be outside, let the outside come into me. Being outside, putting my face up to the sun. I try to hike two times a week. If I can't hike, I walk uh, just outside. Anything to do with nature really uplifts me for sure. Yeah, that's something that's such an easy one for me. It's even just like, yeah, like going outside and looking in the sky, like just really, Mm -hmm. it sounds so like basic or small but it really helps me to be like yeah i don't know in many different ways of like to see like the vastness of life just by looking up yeah um all right i ask everybody i have this thing i'm constantly reminding myself of what is easiest for me is not always what is best for me Uh and so ask everyone to apply that to their own life what is easiest for me is to blank what is best for me is to be blank. And this could be something like a daily habit, one way where you're like, need to call yourself out on something right now. <laughs> you know what? I love that you're asking this. I was thinking about the name of your podcast. What's easiest for me is I'm a self-doubt, internally negative, pessimistic human being, which is so embarrassing to admit out loud. <laughs> But I love it. I love that you're admitting. But like, you know, people think about the future and they think really happy thoughts. And I think about the future and I'm like, oh my God. And so I'm really working on shifting that this year in therapy of just like, how do I actually become more positive and look into the light? Because my default button is pretty dark and it's fine. It makes me good at what I do. I can sit with human beings' pain. Um, but I'm ready to shift that story a little bit. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. That, that you're seeing that too. That's huge yeah. that you're able yeah. to see that within yourself. Cause then that makes a way for change to be possible. For sure. For sure. Um, okay. The next thing, let's see if this works. I have, I'm going to hopefully this works, pull up an image of all of my keychains. Can you see this? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. So there's just one picture of the keychain, but these are all phrases that go on the keychains. So I ask everybody not necessarily pick which phrase they like the most, but which they need as a reminder the most in their life right now. And why? Oh my gosh. These are so good. I would say everything is going my way. Yes. 
that's a big one for me right now because I, 2019, 2020, um, my husband and I are going through a divorce. Like it's almost final. And I really want to be able to purchase a home next year, like be a sole homeowner, solo homeowner. And so I just, it's very easy for me to get into the like hustle, get it done, you know, make the money. And I'm just trying to constantly remind myself, like it's only month, month one, you still have 11 more months to go. Just like things are going your way. And even if like, it's all going to turn out exactly as it needs to, and you're doing your best, you don't have to push for 11 more months. Yeah, that's my favorite reminder. And so I'm like, I, it's been the one on my keys for a year now and I'm drinking out of the mug. It. I like Oh my God, I love it. I love it. Everything is going my way. It's my favorite reminder. It's just like an easy, like, can't like pause all of those swirling doubts, fears, what ifs. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. is going my way. It's true. We I mean, it we don't know does. how it's working out. <laughs> we don't know. We never know. And... I'm here. I'm sitting here. I'm alive. I'm breathing with you. I like could almost cry this morning when I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be on her podcast. This is incredible. I'm just felt filled with gratitude. And I'm like, this is it. This is it. It's happening right now. Yes. It's my favorite reminder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The last question is, the name of the podcast is Claim It. Because I believe that our feelings of enoughness, of worth, of being loved, of successful, of all of that are never out there somewhere. Once I get this, be this, this size, this financial level, buy this house, whatever, then I will feel this. But it's Mm -hmm. always really an inside job. Mm -hmm. We will never feel those things unless we are claiming it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? I, what I'm claiming for myself is that I'm an entrepreneur and I, I do things my way. I move a little slower than the rest of the pack and that's okay. Things are still happening at the same rate and I'm claiming that. Yeah. And as a fellow entrepreneur who does things at their own rate, you don't have to buy into that bullshit that you are slower. Mm -hmm. You're perfectly right on time. There's no right way or one way of doing things. Thank you. There's so many. The best way to do this, the best way. Those are great. I love reading those things. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to do those things. You do what works for you. (laughs) Thank you. Bring it on. That's me. That's also me. Like that's yelling. That's how I've lived my entrepreneurial life. <laughs> I love it. All right. Awesome. It. Thank you so, so much for sharing so much and for what you're doing and for believing in yourself and putting that out there. Like, thank you. You know, it's big that you healed yourself and then are now like showing other women, women this pathway. So mm-hmm. I thank you, you for having me. Thank you for having me so much, Trisha. I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to be here with you. Oh, that makes me feel all special. <laughs> yeah, you are. Thank you. All right. I hope that you love that episode. Got something from it. As always, you can always reach out to me at your dryologist. So she is Soshi Adelstein. 
uh, on Instagram and social media. We love hearing from you. We love seeing you share about the episode and share it with your friends and community. Please do that. For full show notes and links, go to yourdrawologist.com slash podcast. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That means something to me. I love to know what you're getting from it, why you listen to the episodes. And also it means something in the like Apple podcast world of how they place your show. (laughs) So I'm super grateful. And if you do leave a review, screenshot it to me, send it to podcast at yourdrawologist.com and I'll send you a little gift for my product line. You know, I have everybody pick a keychain, but I have the affirmation deck, art prints, mugs, wine glasses, magnets, notepads, journals, all sorts of good things to empower you and inspire you to remind you of who you really are and to get out of your own way. Again, find Soshi at Soshi Edelstein, all things me, yourdryologist.com, at yourdryologist. Let's leave this episode with thinking about what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. What is showing up right now in your life as well as this would be easiest, but I know that this choice is best for me. And as has been mentioned before, sometimes the easiest choice is the best choice. We just try to make it too hard or into a should of what somebody else we think wants of us or expects of us or even our past selves expect of us. So what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. All right. Come find me at Your Duologist and let me know what you think about the episode. Thank you.